Mountains in Matthew series, um, and we've been, uh, I want to take you back. I want to take you back to the beginning of this thing. And, and the beginning of this thing was, actually it was Groundhog Day. And good old, I think it's, is it Pugsatani? Uh, Phil is the name of the groundhog. Um, and, and back on February 2nd, when I started this series, he did not see his shadow, which means we were headed for an early spring. Um, as I was furiously researching um, Groundhog Day, I realized that only 20 out of 123 times the groundhog has not seen its shadow or predicted an early spring. That was February 2nd. A couple other things that were happening on February 2nd. Um, we were a week into mourning the helicopter crash of Kobe Bryant and the nine others or the eight others that were involved in that crash. And, and the image down there on the right is hard to see. Um, we were gearing up for the Iowa caucus, the Democratic Iowa caucus, which was about to happen. And we were talking about all the presidential candidates. Good morning, Glistens, and good morning, Donna. I see you guys coming up in there. So we're just doing a sermon recap. So, um, And then also, February 2nd was a Super Bowl, the 49ers versus the Chiefs. It was interesting. I was reading an article this week and they were talking, Chase, if you're out there, you might want to plug your ears for this one. They were talking about how fortunate it was that the 49ers did not win the Super Bowl as we've seen that this virus has been in our country for far longer than we initially anticipated. Uh, one of the comments was that if they would have had the big parade in San Francisco and the potential of the virus there, there, the outbreak in San Francisco could have been much, much worse. But this was all the way back on February 2nd. It was also the day that we started um, hiking through these mountains in Matthew. And what I wanna do this morning, as we always do, is I wanna kinda look back and listen, or I want to reflect and receive right there's this kind of reflection and receiving and again this kind of has two functions this sermon um always i say this and you guys have probably can quote me on this by now but uh experience teaches us nothing it's experience with reflection is what teaches us uh, jr briggs says that half of education is reflection i know this will be a little hard to see because i couldn't get this in a black background uh, there was a graph. Let me see if I can kind of get out of the way. There was a graph that was done, and it talked about a 10-minute presentation and how much is actually remembered. And there, if you see on the left, there's the memory percentage, and there, if you see down on the bottom, it's the days after the training or the presentation. Um, after about one day, you lose about 50% of what you've learned. After about seven days, you learn you lose about 90% of what you learned. So for us as a church, um, we're not in a hurry. And I just want to make sure that the words and the teachings and the message of Jesus kind of sink down in your soul. And so I know that we have a tendency to forget. I forget. I look at sometimes look at the sermons and I'm like, I don't even remember what I talked about. Um, so it's good for us to kind of look back and reflect and uh, uh, jog our memories for what might be. But it's also to helpful to go back to those teachings. So as I've always said, is that we hear God's voice, right? God, what is it that you are saying to me, that you're saying to us as a community through these teachings? Um, what's happening in my home, in my community, in my work, in this uh, season of isolation, of distancing? Um, what is happening with these daily activities? Um, and what would you want to say to that, Lord? Uh, so when I do these teachings, again, it's not just... For more information, it's not just to become a smarter Christian. Um, really, it's that God would speak to you. That's what we always keep coming back to you. To, that's what we always keep coming back to. That the Bible is God communicating with his people. And you and I, we just engage in that reality. Um, my prayer, again, as always, is that God would take root in our beings. Root deep down in our beings. And he would give us wisdom and perspective in our lives. So, oh my goodness. If you guys go over to the comments, there's, there's a guy named Bob Estrada. And Bob and I, back when I, I want to see, I was 18 or 19 years old. Bob, so good for you to check in. Bob and I used to do drywall together. When I just graduated high school, Bob and I did drywall together. So, 
Bob, thanks for checking in, man. I miss you. I hope you're doing good. I still see you doing drywall out there on Facebook, so thanks for checking in, my man. Um, so let's go back to the very beginning, to that first sermon on February 2nd. And we were talking, we kind of had this fun moment of like, hey, who's climbed the highest mountain? And then here's the picture. Again, I'll try and get out of the way a little bit of Jessica at base camp in Everest. I thought was one of my favorite moments of this whole series. Like, whoa, you've been to Everest base camp. That's so amazing. Um, and then we, you know, we kind of had this, this mountain picture, this mountain peaks over here in, in Norway that we were using. Here's the movements, uh, the Temptation Mountain, the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and the Warnings, the Feeding of the 4,000, the Transfiguration, Gethsemane, and then the Great Commission. So that first mountain there is Temptation Mountain. Um, and we talked about Satan. Satan takes Jesus, or the Spirit leads Satan, or, <laughs> hold on. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And Satan begins to tempt him. One of the temptations he does is he leads him up onto a very high mountain, right? And he tempts him with the kingdoms of the world. We talked a bit about Satan that morning. Satan's name, I like to call him the splitter, right? And that's what his name more or less means. He isolates, he divides, he segregates. Um, we also said that Satan has real and tangible power in this world, which emphasizes our need for a savior with real and tangible power. Satan isn't just some phantom. He's not just a pitchfork cartoon character. He has real and tangible power and we need the saving power of Jesus in our lives. Um, the temptation again that Satan gives to Jesus is he offers him the splendors of the world without the suffering. And he says, if you worship me, if you just bow down to me, right? And again, this is a one-time deal, right? It was just this kind of one-time deal that if you worship me, if you bow down to me, I will give you all of this. And what we learned about sin, right? And what we learned about temptation um, is as Satan works this in us, the temptation and the lure um, towards sin, that they are shortcuts at their very heart. Satan is always offering us shortcuts. Um, so for example, that we use anger, we use demands to help us get our way quickly. Uh, lust and pornography offers us intimacy without vulnerability, commitment. Um, you might be protecting the person by not telling the truth. Sometimes we think that we face that temptation just not to tell the truth, not to speak the truth in love. And we think that we're actually protecting someone. It's just a shortcut. Um, when I get my next raise, right? When I get that stimulus check, uh, then I can afford to be generous. It's just a shortcut. Revenge is going to make me feel better. It is important that I get the credit, the respect for what I deserve. And so again, as we understand temptations, the temptations that Satan offers us are always just shortcuts. He offers Jesus a shortcut, this momentary bow for the kingdoms of the world. Jesus understood he had to traverse through his life, through his suffering. And not only does he get the kingdoms of the world in the Great Commission, Jesus says, in the, in, um, as God speaks to him, he says, all authority on earth and in heaven. Jesus gets the authority, not just of the world, but all of the heavens, of the galaxy, of the entire universe. So we talked about Satan on that temptation mountain. We moved into the Beatitudes. Again, a picture here. I really just thought this was a beautiful picture. Uh, we kind of moved up towards those hills around the Sea of Galilee. We dove into the world's greatest sermon. And we started with the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes, as we understood them, we looked at the definition of blessing. We looked at the disposition of the Beatitudes and then the direction of the Beatitudes. The definition of the Beatitudes. Um, blessing, a lot of times when we hear that word, right, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed, blessed. Jesus uses these blessings. And again, when we use that word blessed, it's not just happy wishing. It's kind of become this generic church word, right? The, hey, be blessed. And we just kind of are happily wishing upon other people. When you use that word blessed, when Jesus used that word blessed, it was a dynamic 
pronouncement conveying a gift to the recipient. Again, think about the way that Isaac blessed Jacob. It wasn't just that he was wishing him well and hoping things go good for him. It was a dynamic pronouncement. It was a gift. There was a declaration of a new reality and an exhortation to live in that new reality. So Jesus begins with these words, you know, blessed, blessed, blessed. It's important to understand what that word blessed means. And then the disposition of the Beatitudes, and I'm going to quote quite a bit of Bruner, and I think you guys have known, I've said this a million times, his commentary, uh, just really remarkable. Um, Bruner says this, he says that Jesus begins not with demands, but with blessings. This already tells us something about Jesus. He blesses before he commands he helps before he orders. The Beatitudes are not formulas. It's not that if you do X, you will receive Y. They are not a list of morals to be perfected. It is blessing. It is helping. It is loving. It is God being with us. And then the direction of the Beatitudes. Again, I think we could use a stick figure. You could draw a stick figure, that person that's on their knees, right? And we start with this um, Someone who is a poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Um, someone who lacks joy. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Someone who lacks power. Blessed, um, someone who lacks righteousness, right? So maybe a person on their knees, you kind of start there. Those who are poor in spirit, joy, power, righteousness. But then as God blesses, as he helps, as he lifts us up, we stand up and now our hands are kind of stretched out, right? They kind of, we have our hands stretched out and we are full of mercy that we dispense. We are full of purity that we are able to live in. We are full of peace. We are peacemakers that we are able to work towards. We stand out. But then we end the Beatitudes back on our back in persecution, persecuted for righteousness sake, Persecuted because of Jesus. Often persecution comes by living the truth of the Beatitudes. And we're on our back. So the Beatitudes, the definition, the disposition, and the direction. Have I missed any or lost anybody yet before we move to this second part of the Sermon on the Mount? Good? Good. Um, the second part of the Sermon on the Mount is we then get to the warnings at the end. We just did the two Sermons on the Mount, and we did the very beginning and the very end. We bookended it. Um, and we get these, we get these four images. Um, we get the wide and the narrow road. Um, that's kind of depicted by that mountain path. Um, and we're going to kind of go clockwise. We get the image of the sheep and the wolf, or, or the sheep or the wolf in sheep's clothing. We get the image of the tree bearing good fruit. Of course, I picked a coffee tree because that could be the most important tree in the world. And then we also had the picture of the house that was built on two foundations, sand and rock. So let's walk through these real quickly and see what we learned about each. Jesus starts this very broadly with the wide and narrow road or gate, right? Um, and as we understand it, right, our Bibles say that we are to find it. And sometimes we read that as a one-and-done choice. Um, but the, the, the way that it should read is a bit more of how few are finding the way. It's this kind of, as Bruner says, it's this present tense verb that underlines the daily decisions to find this gate and decide every day to follow him. Um, and so this, this beginning is this kind of dominant idea. It's this thought that we're not just a one and done, hey, I found the gate, hey, I found the road, but it is a present tense. I, ho I hope that you woke up this morning and said at some level in your soul, it might not have been this exact words, Jesus, I want to follow you today. I want to follow down the road that you have for me in life. And then... The next one, the next quote here by Pierre Bonnard, the dominant idea again is this, in order to enter life that Jesus promises, it's necessary to make a personal choice, no longer to follow the anonymous crowds, but on the contrary, to find and follow the Christ. So we choose that gate, we choose that road. It's a one time, but it's also a continual choice. And then we move to the sheep and the wolf, the trees and the fruit. Perhaps the greatest um, Photoshop genius moment here 
was when I added myself to the top of a sheep with a, a, a wolf hidden in sheep's clothes. And the real question as I was reading this passage is, how do we know, right? How do we know that, that me, like I have to examine myself. Am, am I really a wolf in sheep's clothing? Could that be true of me? I've quoted Bruner a lot. Could Bruner be a wolf in sheep's clothing? We look at different leaders around here. Could Greg Laurie be a wolf in sheep's clothing? Could uh, Rick Warren be a wolf in sheep's clothing? How do we know and how are we able to tell? But Jesus, um, God bless him, right? Jesus makes it so easy for us because he says it will be obvious. And again, this coffee tree, he says it will be obvious by the fruit that they're producing in their life. Twice in this passage, he tells us, we will know them by their fruit. So questions to ask, how do they invite and receive feedback or criticism? Are they defensive? Do they attack back? Do they sulk and get depressed? Are they passive aggressive, right? How does maybe a leader or how does a shepherd, how do they examine their lives? What interior work do you see them doing? And does it make a difference in their lives, right? Does their life make you desire a deeper relationship with Christ? Does it point you to kingdom living? So these are questions we have to ask ourselves as we look to the sheep, as we look to the wolves, as we look to leaders and shepherds and say, hey, is this person really um, showing me the way? Um, Again, Bruner says it like this. Again, it was when you look at the fruit in a leader's life, I'll read this. The fruits Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus is giving these warnings at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The fruits Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount are less sensational and more simple. Re- revering Scripture's commandments, casting out one's anger, the miracles of sexual purity and marital fidelity, the careful speech that does not misuse God's name by oaths or other careless speech, and most deeply, the heart that extends itself even to persecutors and enemies. When you observe someone's fruit, is it sensational? Is it spectacular? Is it exciting? Do you see a a shepherd? Do you see a leader who is simple, sincere, and solid? Jesus ends his warning with the two houses, Right, The one house that's built on sand and the one house that's built on rock. Again, Bruner says this. He says, the house that crashes is the house of the Christian who finds Jesus' words important enough to hear, but not realistic enough to live by. When we examine Jesus' words, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, We listen to them, and we use this example, as if we were watching an instructional video on YouTube, right? You are listening in a way knowing that you will have to go out and perform this task in the real world. And here we got our brother, Cass, and he's teaching us how to replace an electrical outlet. And if you did not know how to do that, you would want to pay very close attention to how to do that so you do not have an electrical fire and have your house burned down. When we examine Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, that is how we are examining them, right? We are listening to them as we are watching an instructional video on YouTube, knowing that we will have to put those words into practice. Good so far? Let's go to the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 4,000. As we kind of jump into this feeding of the 4,000, It's very important that we connect this with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does two miraculous feedings in the scriptures. One is the 5,000, and then another one is the 4,000. Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000 in Bethsaida, which was Israelite territory. There are 12 baskets left over. And the symbolic connection that scholars make here is that Jesus, in in a village called the House of Bread, is providing bread... In such a way that all are satisfied. There are 12 leftover baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There is echoes of Moses in the wilderness. Jesus is providing bread in the wilderness, right? But if you look on the map here, again, this might be hard to see. You see 
The feeding of the 5,000 kind of happens up towards the top in the Galilee region um, by Bethsaida. And then you see the feeding of the 4,000 happening down here in the Decapolis, right? Remember, the Decapolis is the, is the seven nations displaced from conquest of the land in Joshua 3, right? In, 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 the, in the book of Joshua, Joshua moves into the promised land and he displaces these seven nations. These seven nations are exiled, they're kicked out, and they now create this area called the Decapolis. It was Gentile territory. It was pagan territory. And so Jesus goes out there and he feeds them, but now he has seven leftover baskets. The 4,000 um, declares that he is also the bread of life for the Gentiles, right? The pagans once conquered and exiled are now healed and fed by the words and actions of the Messiah. We could even think of this as a different type of invasion, right? The invasion in Joshua 3 is about exile. The invasion in the book of Matthew is a invasion of satisfaction and feeding and generosity. It's one thing to say who you are. It's another thing to show who you are. Jesus is subtly and symbolically defining his vocation, his mission, not just to the Israelites, but to the entire world. The once enemies of the Israelite nation have been brought close by this feeding. Lastly, we talked about asset-based ministry, right? Jesus asked his disciples, what do you have that we can do ministry with here, right? And they have their five loaves and two fish. What do you have, right? And so we ask ourselves, what do we have to bring to the world in Jesus's name to do ministry, to love, to feed, to supply, to care, right? And we just take what we love and what we do, whether it would be coffee or whether it would be um, coffee for some of you, um, or whether it would be a bicycle repair, I'm just thinking, sorry, I'm just thinking about myself at the moment, or whether it would be um, tutoring, crafting, cooking, what do we have that we bring, what assets do we have that we bring to the world to do ministry? All right, we got three more. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's incidental that this was our last gathering for our church back on March 15th. This was the last sermon I gave to you in the flesh and blood. Um, and we looked at these words that God spoke to Jesus, right? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We talked about two things that week. We talked about exclusivity. We talked about uh, listening. Those kind of two words were the main two words that we listened. Here's why we had to talk about exclusivity, right? Um, in the early church, right, Jesus's exclusivity, his priority was critical because for well over a century after Jesus's resurrection, the newborn Christian community lived without an authorized canonical New Testament. They didn't have anything, right? All they had in their hands were in very few places where the revered Hebrew or Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in their, in their hearts, everywhere, the stories of Jesus that they heard from their teachers, right? So in this passage, one of the things that's happening is that Jesus is the one who is transfigured. Jesus is the one who is being said, listen to him, given priority. There are no equal tabernacles to be built. Jesus is the one. And this was important for the early church to understand because people in the early church, um, they had Moses' words. They had the, the words of Elijah, the prophet. They had the words of Jesus. Which one carried the most weight? Which one had the priority? And so you have this passage in which God speaks to his son. This is my son whom I love. And you listen to him, Jesus was given exclusivity, he was given priority, he was given the top position, not just then, but now, right? Therefore, we listen to Jesus, right? We listen to Jesus. And the three things that we discussed about listening to Jesus is that we listen 
before we take action. Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah and Peter interrupts and Peter gets this great idea that he's going to go start building temples. He's going to start go building tabernacles, tents, right? Um, I confessed that week and I still continue to confess that this is one of the shortcuts that that I get tempted with by Satan. That I can go do action, that I can go do ministry, that I can go do things for Jesus um, without being in time of prayer and listening first. One of the things that I've reflected on this whole COVID, uh, corona, isolation piece is I wish at the very beginning of this, I would have spent substantial time uh, in prayer and listening to God about what direction he would want me to go. And I confess that I didn't. And I wish that I would have. Um, We are to listen before action. Mountains and Matthew series, um, and we've been, uh, I want to take you back. I want to take you back to the beginning of this thing. And, and the beginning of this thing was, actually it was Groundhog Day. And good old, I think it's, is it Pugsatani? Uh, Phil is the name of the groundhog. Um, and, and back on February 2nd, when I started this series, he did not see his shadow, which means we were headed for an early spring. Um, As I was furiously researching um, Groundhog Day, I realized that only 20 out of 123 times the groundhog has not seen its shadow or predicted an early spring. That was February 2nd. A couple other things that were happening on February 2nd. um, We were a week into mourning the helicopter crash of Kobe Bryant and the nine others or the eight others that were involved in that crash. And, and the image down there on the right is hard to see. Um, we were gearing up for the Iowa caucus, the Democratic Iowa caucus, which was about to happen. And we were talking about all the presidential candidates. Good morning, Glistens, and good morning, Donna. I see you guys coming up in there. So we're just doing a sermon recap. So, um, And then also, February 2nd was... Uh, a Super Bowl, the 49ers versus the Chiefs. It was interesting. I was reading an article this week and they were talking, Chase, if you're out there, you might want to plug your ears for this one. They were talking about how fortunate it was that the 49ers did not win the Super Bowl as we've seen that this virus has been in our country for far longer than we initially anticipated. Uh, one of the comments was that if they would have had the big parade in San Francisco and the potential of the virus there, there, the outbreak in San Francisco could have been much, much worse. But this was all the way back on February 2nd. It was also the day that we started um, hiking through these mountains in Matthew. And what I wanna do this morning, as we always do, is I wanna kinda look back and listen, or I want to reflect and receive, right? There's this kind of reflection and receiving. And again, this kind of has two functions, this sermon. Um, always I say this, and you guys have probably can quote me on this by now, but uh, experience teaches us nothing. It's experience with reflection is what teaches us. Uh, J.R. Briggs says that half of education is reflection. I know this will be a little hard to see because I couldn't get this in a black background. Uh, There was a graph. Let me see if I can kind of get out of the way. There was a graph that was done, and it talked about a 10-minute presentation and how much is actually remembered. And there, if you see on the left, there's the memory percentage, and there, if you see down on the bottom, it's the days after the training or the presentation. Um, After about one day, you lose about 50% of what you've learned. After about seven days, you you lose about 90% of what you learned. So for us as a church, um, we're not in a hurry. And I just want to make sure that the words and the teachings and the message of Jesus kind of sink down in your soul. And so I know that we have a tendency to forget. I forget. I look at sometimes look at the sermons and I'm like, I don't even remember what I talked about. Um, So it's good for us to kind of look back and reflect and uh, uh, jog our memories for what might be. But it's also helpful to go back to those teachings. So as I've always said, 
is that we hear God's voice, right? God, what is it that you are saying to me, that you're saying to us as a community through these teachings? Um, what's happening in my home, in my community, in my work, in this uh, season of isolation, of distancing? Um, what is happening with these daily activities? Um, and what would you want to say to that, Lord? Uh, so when I do these teachings, again, it's not just for more information. It's not just to become a smarter Christian. Um, really, it's that God would speak to you. That's what we always keep coming back to you. To, that's what we always keep coming back to. That the Bible is God communicating with his people. And you and I, we just engage in that reality. Um, my prayer, again, as always, is that God would take root in our beings, root deep down in our beings, and he would give us wisdom and perspective in our lives. So, oh my goodness, if you guys go over to the comments, there's, there's a guy named Bob Estrada, and Bob and I, back when I, I want to see, I was 18 or 19 years old, Bob, so good for you to check in, Bob and I used to do drywall together when I just graduated high school, Bob and I did drywall together, so... Bob, thanks for checking in, man. I miss you. I hope you're doing good. I still see you doing drywall out there on Facebook, so thanks for checking in, my man. Um, so let's go back to the very beginning, to that first sermon on February 2nd. And we were talking, we kind of had this fun moment of like, hey, who's climbed the highest mountain? And then here's the picture, again, I'll try and get out of the way a little bit, of Jessica at base camp in Everest. I thought was one of my favorite moments of this whole series. Like, whoa, you've been to Everest base camp. That's so amazing. Um, and then we, you know, we kind of had this, this mountain picture, this mountain peaks over here in, in Norway that we were using. Here's the movements, uh, the temptation mountain, the sermon on the mount with the beatitudes and the warnings, the feeding of the 4,000, the transfiguration, Gethsemane, and then the great commission. So that first mountain there is temptation mountain. Um, and we talked about Satan. Satan takes Jesus or the spirit leads Satan or <laughs> hold on. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, and Satan begins to tempt him. One of the temptations he does is he leads him up onto a very high mountain, right? And he tempts him with the kingdoms of the world. We talked a bit about Satan that morning. Satan's name, I like to call him the splitter, right? And that's what his name more or less means. He isolates, he divides, he segregates. Um, we also said that Satan has real and tangible power in this world which emphasizes our need for a savior with real and tangible power. Satan isn't just some phantom. He's not just a pitchfork cartoon character. He has real and tangible power, and we need the saving power of Jesus in our lives. Um, the temptation, again, that Satan gives to Jesus is he offers him the splendors of the world without the suffering. And he says, if you worship me, if you just bow down to me, right? And again, this is a one-time deal, right? It was just this kind of one-time deal that if you worship me, if you bow down to me, I will give you all of this. And what we learned about sin, right? And what we learned about temptation um, is as Satan works this in us, the temptation and the lure um, towards sin, that they are shortcuts at their very heart. Satan is always offering us shortcuts. Um, so for example, that we use anger, we use demands to help us get our way quickly. Uh, lust and pornography offers us intimacy without vulnerability, commitment. Um, you might be protecting the person by not telling the truth. Sometimes we think that we face that temptation just not to tell the truth, not to speak the truth in love. And we think that we're actually protecting someone. It's just a shortcut. Um, when I get my next raise, right? When I get that stimulus check, uh, then I can afford to be generous. It's just a shortcut. Revenge is going to make me feel better. It is important that I get the credit, the respect for what I deserve. And so again, as we understand temptations, the temptations that Satan offers us are always just shortcuts. He offers Jesus a shortcut, this momentary bow for the kingdoms of the world. Jesus understood he had to traverse through his life, through his suffering. And not only does he get the kingdoms of the world in the Great Commission, Jesus says, 
in the, in, uh, as God speaks to him, he says, all authority on earth and in heaven. Jesus gets the authority, not just of the world, but all of the heavens, of the galaxy, of the entire universe. So we talked about Satan on that temptation mountain. We moved into the Beatitudes. Again, a picture here. I really just thought this was a beautiful picture. Uh, we kind of moved up towards those hills around the Sea of Galilee. We dove into the world's greatest sermon. And we started with the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes, as we understood them, we looked at the definition of blessing. We looked at the disposition of the Beatitudes and then the direction of the Beatitudes. The definition of the Beatitudes. Um, blessing, a lot of times when we hear that word, right, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed, blessed. Jesus uses these blessings. And again, when we use that word blessed, it's not just happy wishing. It's kind of become this generic church word, right? The, hey, be blessed. And we just kind of are happily wishing upon other people. When you use that word blessed, when Jesus used that word blessed, it was a dynamic pronouncement conveying a gift to the recipient. Again, think about the way that Isaac blessed Jacob. It wasn't just that he was wishing him well and hoping things go good for him. It was a dynamic pronouncement. It was a gift. There was a declaration of a new reality and an exhortation to live in that new reality. So Jesus begins with these words, you know, blessed, blessed, blessed. It's important to understand what that word blessed means. And then the disposition of the Beatitudes, and I'm going to quote quite a bit of Brunner, and I think you guys have known, I've said this a million times, his commentary uh, just really remarkable. Um, Bruner says this. He says that Jesus begins not with demands, but with blessings. This already tells us something about Jesus. He blesses before he commands. He helps before he orders. The Beatitudes are not formulas. It's not that if you do X, you will receive Y. They are not a list of morals to be perfected. It is blessing, it is helping, it is loving, it is God being with us. And then the direction of the Beatitudes, again, I think we could use a stick figure, you could draw a stick figure, that person that's on their knees, right? And we start with this, um, someone who is a poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Um, someone who lacks joy, blessed are those who mourn, right? Someone who lacks power, blessed um, someone who lacks righteousness, right? So maybe a person on their knees, you kind of start there. Those who are poor in spirit, joy, power, righteousness. But then as God blesses, as he helps, as he lifts us up, we stand up and now our hands are kind of stretched out, right? They kind of, we have our hands stretched out and we are full of mercy that we dispense. We are full of purity that we are able to live in. We are full of peace. We are peacemakers that we are able to work towards. We stand out. But then we end the Beatitudes back on our back in persecution. Persecuted for righteousness sake. Persecuted because of Jesus. Often persecution comes by living the truth of the Beatitudes and we're on our back. So the Beatitudes, the definition, the disposition, and the direction. Have I missed any or lost anybody yet before we move to this second part of the Sermon on the Mount? Good? Good. Um, the second part of the Sermon on the Mount is we then get to the warnings at the end. We just did the two Sermons on the Mount, and we did the very beginning and the very end. We bookended it. Um, and we get these, we get these four images. Um, we get the wide and the narrow road, um, as kind of depicted by that mountain path. Um, and we're going to kind of go clockwise. We get the image of the sheep and the wolf, or, or the sheep or the wolf in sheep's clothing. We get the image of the tree bearing good fruit. Of course, I picked a coffee tree because that could be the most important tree in the world. And then we also had the picture of the house that was built on two foundations, sand and rock. So let's walk through these real quickly and see what we learned about each. Jesus starts this very broadly with the wide and narrow road or gate, right? Um, and as we understand it, right, our Bibles say that we are to find it. And sometimes we read that as a one and done choice. Um, but the, the, the way that it should read is a bit more of how few are finding 
the way. It's just kind of, as Bruner says, it's this present tense verb that underlines the daily decisions to find this gate and decide every day to follow him. Um, and so this, this beginning is this kind of dominant idea. It's this thought that we're not just a one and done, hey, I found the gate, hey, I found the road, but it is a present tense. I, ho- I hope that you woke up this morning and said at some level in your soul, it might not have been this exact words, Jesus, I want to follow you today. I want to follow down the road that you have for me in life. And then the next one, the next quote here by Pierre Bernard, the dominant idea again is this, in order to enter life that Jesus promises, it's necessary to make a personal choice, no longer to follow the anonymous crowds, but on the contrary, to find and follow the Christ. So we choose that gate, we choose that road. It's a one time, but it's also a continual choice. And then we move to the sheep and the wolf, the trees and the fruit. Perhaps the greatest um, Photoshop genius moment here was when I added myself to the top of a sheep with a, a, a wolf hidden in sheep's clothes. And the real question as I was reading this passage is, how do we know, right? How do we know that, that me, like I have to examine myself. Am, am I really a wolf in sheep's clothing? Could that be true of me? I've quoted Bruner a lot. Could Bruner be a wolf in sheep's clothing? We look at different leaders around here. Could Greg Laurie be a wolf in sheep's clothing? Could uh, Rick Warren be a wolf in sheep's clothing? How do we know and how are we able to tell? But Jesus, um, God bless him, right? Jesus makes it so easy for us because he says it will be obvious. And again, this coffee tree, he says it will be obvious by the fruit that they're producing in their life. Twice in this passage, he tells us, we will know them by their fruit. So questions to ask, how do they invite and receive feedback or criticism? Are they defensive? Do they attack back? Do they sulk and get depressed? Are they passive aggressive, right? How does maybe a leader or how does a shepherd, how do they examine their lives? What interior work do you see them doing? And does it make a difference in their lives, right? Does their life make you desire a deeper relationship with Christ? Does it point you to kingdom living? So these are questions we have to ask ourselves as we look to the sheep, as we look to the wolves, as we look to leaders and shepherds and say, hey, is this person really um, showing me the way? Um, Again, Bruner says it like this. Again, it was when you look at the fruit in a leader's life, I'll read this. The fruits Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus is giving these warnings at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? The fruits Jesus commands in his Sermon on the Mount are less sensational and more simple. Re- revering Scripture's commandments, casting out one's anger, the miracles of sexual purity and marital fidelity, the careful speech that does not misuse God's name by oaths or other careless speech, and most deeply, the heart that extends itself even to persecutors and enemies. When you observe someone's fruit, is it sensational? Is it spectacular? Is it exciting? Do you see a a shepherd? Do you see a leader who is simple, sincere, and solid? Jesus ends his warning with the two houses, Right, The one house that's built on sand and the one house that's built on rock. Again, Bruner says this. He says, the house that crashes is the house of the Christian who finds Jesus' words important enough to hear, but not realistic enough to live by. When we examine Jesus' words, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, We listen to them, and we use this example, as if we were watching an instructional video on YouTube, right? You are listening in a way knowing that you will have to go out and perform this task in the real world. And here we got our brother, Cass, and he's teaching us how to replace an electrical outlet. And if you did not know how to do that, you would want to pay very close attention to how to do that so you do not have an electrical fire and have your house burned down. 
When we examine Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, that is how we are examining them, right? We are listening to them as we are watching an instructional video on YouTube, knowing that we will have to put those words into practice. Good so far? Let's go to the feeding of the 4,000. The feeding of the 4,000. As we kind of jump into this feeding of the 4,000, it's very important that we connect this with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does two miraculous feedings in the scriptures. One is the 5,000, and then another one is the 4,000. Um, Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000 in Bethsaida, which was Israelite territory. There are 12 baskets left over. And the symbolic connection that scholars make here is that Jesus, in a, in a village called the House of Bread, is providing bread in such a way that all are satisfied. There are 12 leftover baskets representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There is echoes of Moses in the wilderness. Jesus is providing bread in the wilderness, right? But if you look on the map here, again, this might be hard to see. You see the feeding of the 5,000 kind of happens up towards the top in the Galilee region um, by Bethsaida. And then you see the feeding of the 4,000 happening down here in the Decapolis, right? Remember, the Decapolis is the, is the seven nations displaced from conquest of the land in Joshua 3, right? In, 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 the, in the book of Joshua, Joshua moves into the promised land and he displaces these seven nations. These seven nations are exiled, they're kicked out, and they now create this area called the Decapolis. It was Gentile territory. It was pagan territory. And so Jesus goes out there and he feeds them, but now he has seven leftover baskets. The 4,000 um, declares that he is also the bread of life for the Gentiles, right? The pagans once conquered and exiled are now healed and fed by the words and actions of the Messiah. We could even think of this as a different type of invasion, right? The invasion in Joshua 3 is about exile. The invasion in the book of Matthew is a invasion of satisfaction and feeding and generosity. It's one thing to say who you are. It's another thing to show who you are. Jesus is subtly and symbolically defining his vocation, his mission, not just to the Israelites, but to the entire world. The once enemies of the Israelite nation have been brought close by this feeding. Lastly, we talked about asset-based ministry, right? Jesus asked his disciples, what do you have that we can do ministry with here, right? And they have their five loaves and two fish. What do you have, right? And so we ask ourselves, what do we have to bring to the world in Jesus's name to do ministry, to love, to feed, to supply, to care, right? And we just take what we love and what we do, whether it would be coffee or whether it would be um, coffee for some of you, um, or whether it would be a bicycle repair. I'm just thinking, sorry, I'm just thinking about myself at the moment, or whether it would be um, tutoring, crafting, cooking. What do we have that we bring, what assets do we have that we bring to the world to do ministry? All right, we got three more. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's incidental that this was our last gathering for our church back on March 15th. This was the last sermon I gave to you in the flesh and blood. Um, and we looked at these words that God spoke to Jesus, right? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We talked about two things that week. We talked about exclusivity. We talked about uh, listening. Those kind of two words were the main two words that we listened. Here's why we had to talk about exclusivity, right? Um, in the early church, right, Jesus's exclusivity, his priority was critical because for well over a century after Jesus's resurrection, the newborn Christian community lived without an authorized canonical New Testament. They didn't have anything, right? 
All they had in their hands were in very few places where the revered Hebrew or Greek translation of the Old Testament and in their, ha- in their hearts everywhere, the stories of Jesus that they heard from their teachers, right? So in this passage, one of the things that's happening is that Jesus is the one who is transfigured. Jesus is the one who is being said, listen to him, given priority. There are no equal tabernacles to be built. Jesus is the one. And this was important for the early church to understand because people in the early church, um, they had Moses' words, they had the, the words of Elijah the prophet, they had the words of Jesus. Which one carried the most weight? Which one had the priority? And so you have this passage in which God speaks to his son. This is my son whom I love. And you listen to him. Jesus was given exclusivity. He was given priority. He was given the top position, not just then, but now, right? Therefore, we listen to Jesus, right? We listen to Jesus. And the three things that we discussed about listening to Jesus is that we listen before we take action. Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah and Peter interrupts and Peter gets this great idea that he's going to go start building temples. He's going to start go building tabernacles, tents, right? Um, I confessed that week and I still continue to confess that this is one of the shortcuts that, Jesus, that I get tempted with by Satan. That I can go do action, that I can go do ministry, that I can go do things for Jesus um, without being in time of prayer and listening first. One of the things that I've reflected on this whole COVID, uh, corona, isolation piece is I wish at the very beginning of this, I would have spent substantial time uh, in prayer and listening to God about what direction he would want me to go. And I confess that I didn't. And I wish that I would have. Um, We are to listen before action. 